Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on biblical worldview with James Jordan, and here he's going to be talking about feast days and fast days, relating the different feasts and fasts of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and life of the church today. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan, further discussing biblical worldview. Last week, we distinguished between what we call the power of order and the power of jurisdiction. The power of order being the power that we all have to encourage and reprove one another, visit one another in distress, and which is especially carried out by the office bearers, and we give special weight to that. It's also the power of expounding the Word of God, um, which we all do in one way or another, either teaching ourselves or explaining it to other people in conversation. But there is also the power of jurisdiction, and the power of jurisdiction is specially committed to the special officers or elders or overseers or bishops, different ways of translating the words and they have what we call the power of jurisdiction. Now, among those powers is the power to render judgments in judicial cases, um, the power to appoint occasions. We talked about three kinds of occasions that are appointed by special officers. Fellowship occasions, koinonial occasions as they're sometimes called, uh, church dinners and things like that. There's generally not any problem with appointing things like that. People are real happy to attend those. And then there are diaconal occasions, like work days and mowing the grass. Sometimes that type of thing is a little bit more problematic. Uh, but that is definitely a power to blow the trumpet and summon the people together for some act of witness-bearing uh, over against the world, and that would include keeping this property up. And then third is the appointment of liturgical occasions or times of worship. Now, God himself in the Bible has indicated the kinds of patterns that we ought to use in worship. These patterns are set out primarily in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system. First people came and confessed their sins, and then they consecrated themselves to God through the burnt offering and then they fellowshiped with God in the peace offering, or what we have today as the Lord's Supper. So the order was a sin offering for sin, the consecration offering of oneself and one's gifts, and fellowship with God. Now that's the order of liturgy. We come into the presence of God, we confess our sins, then in the offering we offer ourselves as whole burnt sacrifices to God and our, our gifts, and then in the Lord's Supper we have the peace offering or fellowship with God. You'll notice when you read 1 Corinthians that the problem there was you had a bunch of Gentile Christians who were not trained in the way of thinking of the Old Testament. And so they would get together. The first thing they did was have the fellowship meal without going through confession of sin, without going through an offertory. And the problem in, 1 Corinthians, in uh, the Corinthian church, as set out in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, uh, was as much a liturgical problem as anything else. They had the, the order wrong. We don't fellowship with God uh, willy-nilly, but uh, one has the Lord's Supper at a proper time. And there are a lot of interesting things that we could talk about there, and we will later on. 
But along the same lines, the patterns of times of meeting are also set out in the Old Testament. We can say that the power of jurisdiction, the special power of the officers in worship, consists of the appointment of liturgical form, which we've just looked at, the appointment of uh, one liturgical form, and the appointment of times of worship. It's no good if somebody decides that as an individual believer priest, he's going to show up here to worship God at 8 in the morning. Uh, somebody has to make a decision as to what time. And we distinguish, I think, properly between primary and secondary times of meeting. And the primary meetings are on the Lord's Day. And as we've said, people basically have no excuse for not attending worship, uh, and that means both services, because both services are really one, on the Lord's Day. Uh, it is the greatest and highest privilege of man to worship God, and so it is the greatest insult to God to stay away without having some very good reason. And basically our position would have to be that since people have nothing else to do on the Lord's Day, they should be here at all the meetings that are set up, unless there is some particular reason why they can't come. We've talked about that. Then there are secondary kinds of meetings, uh, which are also based on biblical patterns uh, in our churches. The church Catholic through the ages has looked at biblical patterns and set up secondary kinds of meetings for worship. Now, there is, there has always been uh, a group within the Christian church which says that there should be no meetings except those specifically commanded in the Bible. The problem with that is that you can't have a Wednesday night meeting, you can't have Bible conferences, you can't have anything. And so the rule that's used to exclude Christian festivals by saying that there may be no meetings except on Sundays also excludes all kinds of other things that these same people like. So we have to say that it's a little bit better to study biblical patterns, the patterns that God gave to Israel, and then see how we can apply them in the New Covenant era. And we said last week one cautionary word, that the officers must be careful not to set up too many meetings because this interferes with the cultural mandate. We all have work to do six days, of various kinds of work, and uh, if the church is having all kinds of meetings all the time, as some churches do, uh, this prevents people from carrying out the cultural mandate. But these other kinds of meetings are related to the Sabbath in principle. We could look at Leviticus 23 to see an example. Why don't you turn there to Leviticus chapter 23. And let's take a look at the patterns, some of the patterns that are set out in the Old Covenant. Leviticus 23, <coughs> starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, are these. For six days work may be done, but on the Sabbath there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work, it is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Acts 15, verse 21 says that Moses from ancient times has those who teach him in every city. Sometimes you'll hear people say that the synagogue was developed by Ezra during the intertestamental period or toward the end of the Old Covenant, but here is proof that that's not the case. The synagogue was set up from the very beginning. Every Sabbath day there was to be a holy convocation in the synagogue under the leadership of the Levite who was in the town. And the Levites were scattered among the towns of Israel as well as living in Levitical cities. And so the primary 
uh, day of worship in ancient Israel was the Sabbath day, the day of rest. Now, that's different in the New Covenant. We don't have a Sabbath day anymore. Sabbaths are canceled, but we have the Lord's Day, which is the day of worship. And just as they kept their Sabbath day of rest as a day of worship, so we keep our Lord's Day of worship as a day of rest. And that's how we try to put together the fact that the New Testament has this polemic against Sabbath days, but then it comes right back around and talks about the Lord's Day as the time of worship. And worship and rest go together in the Bible. So we keep the Lord's Day, which is essentially a day of worship, we keep it as a day of rest, just as they kept their rest day as a day of worship, and they had these holy convocations at that time. But then there are these other appointed times of the Lord which are attached to the Sabbath day. You have Sabbath day as a time of worship, and then attached to that, you have other Sabbaths as well. The Sabbath year is one thing that's attached to the Sabbath, and then there are these uh, occasional festivals as well. Verse 4, these are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread of the Lord, uh, to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. Now, I'm not going to read all of, all of Leviticus 23. <clears throat> Soon we'll come to it. I'm sure uh, Ray will expound this in more detail. But you will find that there are seven special Sabbaths in Leviticus 23. The first and last days of unleavened bread, Pentecost, the first day of the seventh month, the day of atonement in the seventh month, and the first and eighth days of the Feast of Tabernacles. These are the special festival or uh, one of them is a fasting Sabbath, the Day of Atonement, that was put throughout the year. And these, this annual calendar is attached to the weekly calendar. Now, if we are going to pull back the idea of a weekly Sabbath uh, and attach it to the Lord's Day, then we need to do justice to these other patterns as well, Sabbath years, occasional festivals, and the other patterns that the Old Testament sets out. Another pattern which the church has almost never used uh, is set forth in 2 Kings 4, verse 23. I'll just call it to your attention. But we find that Elisha was having worship services not only on the Sabbath days, but at another time as well. Uh, when the, the son of the Shunammite's woman dies, uh, it says that she decides that she's going to go visit Elisha. And her husband says to her in 2 Kings 4, 23, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. In other words, meetings were held on the first day of each month as well as on Sabbath days. So there are these secondary kinds of meetings which are attached to the Sabbath, and since we keep the Lord's Day as a Sabbath, then we would study these other patterns to see what they have for us as well. It's perfectly acceptable to imitate them. Now, what are the other kinds of meetings that are appointed by the officers in our church and in most Christian churches today. Well, first of all, there's weekly Wednesday night meetings. And the Wednesday night meetings, as I mentioned last week, follow the pattern of midweek activities in the Old Covenant. You had the concept of final judgment on the seventh day, but you had the concept of a preliminary judgment on the third day. And so the 
the seven, the pattern of sevens is broken down into one, two, three, and then four, five, six, seven. And a lot of rather interesting and important things happen on the third day in the Old Testament and indicate to us that it would, it's not entirely improper for us to have some type of third day worship activity or midweek activity. We looked at Numbers 19 last time and saw that the man who is unclean from the dead is cleansed on the third day and then again on the seventh. Let's look at some other third day activities in the Old Testament or things that happened on the third day just to see how prominent this is. In Genesis 22, and you don't need to turn to all these, but I'll just explain them to you. When Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed, it says they went a three-day journey. And on, in verse 4 it says, On the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. The scripture calls attention to the fact that this happened on the third day. And that was the day in which Isaac was sacrificed and given back in a type of resurrection, a type of Christ's resurrection, which as you know also happened on the third day. And then there's another interesting thing in Genesis that happens on the third day. In Genesis 42, verse 18, we read that Joseph put his brothers in prison for three days. That's verse 17 and 18. And Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. And he begins to let them out of prison on the third day. Then we know that Israel at the Exodus was to take a three-day journey into the wilderness and have a festival service to God on that third day. In fact, the book of Exodus as a whole is concerned with the Sabbath. Um, The Sabbath idea is the foundation in the theology of the book of Exodus because deliverance from slavery is the uh, one of the key ideas of the Sabbath. So as soon as God gets them out of Egypt, they have this Sabbath festival at Mount Moriah. And when he gives them the law, the very first thing he tells them is that in the sixth year they're to set their slaves free. And you go through the laws in Leviticus and Exodus 21 to 23, the book of the covenant, the first thing is the release of slaves in the Sabbath year, and the last thing in the set of laws is the regulations for the Sabbath year and the Sabbath festivals. Then you have the building of the house of God, and finally in the last chapter of the book of Exodus, you have God entering his house and the final completion of the Sabbath. So... The real heart and soul of the Sabbath there is a release of slaves. You might think about that when you consider uh, what happened to the Confederate States of America. You have theologians who thought the Sabbath day was real super-duper important, but who somehow or other didn't think that releasing slaves in the Sabbath year was very important at all. That's called straining a gnats and swallowing camels. And uh, that has been a problem historically, a real smorgasbord approach to the Old Testament. We take some things and ignore others. But this, we're returning to the idea of third day worship then, that people came out to the, on the third day to worship God from Egypt. And some other examples of third day activities, which are significant in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 20 and verse 5, Hezekiah is brought back from uh, being close to death on the third day. You know that we sing from time to time the song of Hezekiah, which deals with penitence and resurrection. Uh, in, in 2 Kings 20, it describes the occasion for that. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the, son of the pro- Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, 
Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth with a whole heart and have done what is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept with a great weeping. And it came about before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you on the third day. You shall go up to the house of the Lord. And uh, then he goes on. So third day resurrection is pictured here. Uh, Hezekiah was under a sentence of death, and then he is promised life on the third day. For those of you who want to take notes, Hosea 6, verse 2, talks about third day resurrection. Jonah 1, verse 17, obviously, which is a type of the resurrection of Christ. And so as Christ was raised on the eighth day, the day after the Sabbath, and we keep that as the Lord's Day, so also Christ was raised on the third day, and the church historically has taken the third day as an occasion for secondary kinds of worship. Now, obviously, not everybody can come out on Wednesday nights. We know that, and that's not a required meeting. It's voluntary. We try not to set forth new, radical, and earth-shaking ideas on Wednesday night, uh, which would change the direction of the church, but reserve such profound things for Sundays when you are all here. Now, not only uh, midday, is midday week worship something that is appropriate for the elders to set out as times for worship, but also festival days. We see this in Numbers 10, verse 10. Festival days. Also in the days of your gladness and in your appointed feasts, and on the first days of your month, you shall blow your trumpets over the burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. <clears throat> this shall be a reminder to you before your Lord, before the Lord. Okay? The days of your gladness and your appointed feasts. This is a reference to certain special occasions that the elders of the Old Testament would determine was a time to have a special feast or festival, and they would call the people together for worship. There was no violation of the regulative principle implied here. Um, they had the power occasionally to call the people to special worship uh, in and of themselves. Talking about the power of the elders now to appoint special occasions. For instance, when the temple was dedicated in Second Chronicles 5, 12, and 13, we read an example of this. Second Chronicles 5, 12, And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jedathan, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, Harps and lyres standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. And there the trumpets are used to call people to a special day of worship. This was not on the Sabbath day, nor in connection with one of the feasts that God had appointed. Also in the book of Ezra, when the foundation was laid for the second temple, Ezra 3 10 and 11, we see the trumpets blown again to call people together. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, and so forth. So again, it was perfectly permissible for the elders to appoint a special day of festivity uh, in connection with these occasions. When the wall was rebuilt in Nehemiah 12, we see the same thing. 
Nehemiah 12, verse 27, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, hymns of thanksgiving and songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. And then in verse 35, uh, And some of the sons of the priests with trumpets. So again, the trumpets were blown to summon the people together for a special festival occasion. Uh, those of you who'd like one more example could look at Second Chronicles 29, 2 Chronicles 29, verses 26 and 27, which is when the worship system was repaired by Hezekiah, trumpets were blown for a special, unscheduled festival. And then, not only in the Old Testament do we see the power of the elders to appoint occasional, once every 50 years or so, uh, feast days, but they can also appoint annual feasts uh, which go beyond the ones that God himself had appointed in Leviticus. For instance, in the book of Esther, chapter 9, verse 22, Esther 9.22, this is talking about the Feast of Purims. Uh, we start in the middle of a sentence. Well, we'll start in verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar, and on the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, it was a month which turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into festivity. There you see the death and resurrection idea that they should make for them days of feasting and rejoicing and send portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so the basic biblical festival pattern there is set up by Mordecai and the other elders of the Jews, apparently without any divine revelation that they should do so. As you know, in the book of Esther, uh, God never takes an active part. Uh, he always works behind the scenes. But there was apparently no problem with this at all. It's recorded under divine inspiration that they did it. Uh, they sent portions of food to one another, just as we do at our feast, and they sent gifts to the poor, as the church has always done, an imitation of this. And then also, during the intertestamental period, when the temple was destroyed by Antiochus Epiphanes and then rebuilt, uh, the feast of Hanukkah, of the rebuilding of the temple, was set up, and Jesus himself attended this feast. Again, it's not something that God told him to do, but imitating biblical patterns, they did it. Uh, using the power of the elders to establish feasts. And in John 10, verse 22, we read, At that time the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, the turning of the year, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And then we go on, and Jesus um, has a sermon that relates to the feast of Hanukkah. At any rate, there's no condemnation for the establishment of these new annual festivals power of the elders to do this or not to do it as they see fit. Finally, not only uh, midweek services, occasional festivities, annual festivities, there's also the establishment of fast days. And we see the establishment of fast days in Zechariah 7. I wish you would turn here, by the way. Zechariah 7, 3 to 6. Talk about this just a little bit. 
This is an example not of occasional fast days, but the appointment of annual fast days, which were repeated year after year for a time, until the time of Reformation. Zechariah 7, we'll start in verse 1. Then it came about in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Kislev. Now the town Bethel had sent Sherezer and Rejamelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, this is the question that Sherezer and Rejamelech had, Shall I weep in the fifth month or abstain as I have done these many years? In other words, should we keep up this fast day that was set up in the fifth month? Now the fifth month, uh, this was a fast day commemorating an event recorded in Jeremiah 52:12 to 14. I will turn there in Jeremiah 52:12 to 14. Now on the tenth day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard who was in the service of the king of Jerusalem, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and burnt the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. So on the fifth day, of the tenth day of the fifth month. To commemorate the sacking of Jerusalem, there was established an annual fast day. Now, we could, you know, you might think uh, January 22nd, I believe, is the day in which abortion was made legal by the Supreme Court of the United States. You now suppose we set up a fast day every year on that occasion until abortion is once again outlawed. That would be an equivalent type of thing. You pick some great horrible event, you commemorate it with a fast until uh, God undoes the judgment. Now, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, verse 4, Zechariah 7, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months these seventy years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you eat and drink, that is, when you have a festival, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Do you not eat for yourselves, and do you not drink for yourselves? And so he goes on to say that mere ritual fasting and mere ritual festivity is not uh, of interest to God. But if it is done in spirit and in truth, then it is. Remember, Jesus said, when you fast, be not as the Pharisees. When you fast. He didn't say if you fast. He said when you fast. The fast of the seventh month was to commemorate... Uh, a second destruction of Jerusalem and a more final one, which, by the way, takes place in this Sabbath month and is very important typologically and prophetically. Uh, the month of celebration becomes a month of mourning to them because of their sins. We can't take the time to go into that. This, though, indicates there's no criticism here merely of having fast days, but a criticism of keeping them in a ritual manner without dispensing true justice, practicing kindness and compassion, and so forth, as the chapter goes on to say. So it is a power of the special officers to appoint fast days. If they choose to do so, even annual fast days uh, analogous to those appointed here. Uh, The elders could do that, and we should keep them. Now, just how binding in conclusion are these extra days. Uh, This is kind of a gray area in my mind, I have to say. Historically, the church 
has tended to feel that if the special officers have set up a special service on Good Friday or Christmas Eve or the 4th of July or Thanksgiving Day, that everybody ought to be there just like it was the Sabbath or just like it was the Lord's Day. It's just as binding. Uh, you find that some of the Reformers spoke this way. The problem is Reformers had a real low view of the Sabbath. They had a low view of the Lord's Day, and so uh, whenever their view was that whenever the elders appointed a meeting, people had to be there, whether it was on Sunday or some other time. But then you have on the, on the other side the view that uh, extra meetings are completely take it or leave it. Uh, they're just there as a luxury, and you should... It's entirely up to you as an individual whether you want to avail yourself of these extra meetings or not. If a fast is called on January 22nd uh, to bewail the abortion decision, well, you know, if you choose not to do it, then that's just cool, you know, it's no big deal. I think what we have to say is, however, that the, the true weight is somewhere in between. God himself has appointed Lord's Day worship. There's New Testament evidence of that. Lay up your giving on the first day of the week, says the apostle. John says in Revelation 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Clearly, special worship takes place in heaven on the Lord's Day, and we need to imitate that on earth. And so the Lord's Day, there's no question about that. You have to be in church on Sunday. It's a sin not to be. But then these extra times, we would have to give the weight that we give the weight to the office bearers. I'm sorry I'm stumbling through this a bit, but you can tell why. Uh, God has not specially appointed these extra days, but they have been determined by the wisdom of the office bearers in the church. And we should attach genuine weight to the decisions of office bearers. Same as if you came and asked them for advice and they gave you advice. You need to attach weight to that. If you go to somebody else in the church and ask for advice, you don't have to attach as much weight to that. But if you come to see Pastor Sutton or Elder Dwelly or Pastor Balkley or Pastor Dwelly, want two office view here, Pastor, 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 if you come to one of them and they give you a piece of advice, you don't have to take it unless it's straight out of the Bible, in which case you have no choice and it comes straight from God. But you need to attach very heavy weight to advice given you by a special office bearer because they watch for your souls, according to Hebrews 13. They are not to be despised. In fact, some very heavy, I know I'm going a little bit over, but I just want to wrap this up today. Some very heavy things were said in Hebrews 13 about hearkening to special office bearers. And I'll just read you two verses. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who, who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. And then in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, if, if you by your activity cause the elders grief, you're going to be weighed very heavily uh, in God's balance for that. But... Uh, so special weight is attached to the decisions of office bearers, and if they decide to set up a special meeting, a special fast day, a special feast day, we should take that very seriously. It's not doesn't have the same weight as a decision that God makes, but it has very serious weight because it was made by God's special office bearers. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.